Tonight, I have one goal. I want to change the way you look at business. How many of you work in the business world? Many of you. How many of you buy things that are made in the business world? (laughs) Oh, all of you. Okay. So I want to change the way you look at buying things in the business world. I want to change the way you look at people who work in the business world. And if you work in the business world, I want to change the way you you think of work in the business world. When I talk to Christians and say, well, what do you do? Oh, I work for such and such a company. And um, eventually people get around to saying, well, I'm able to share the gospel with people at work and I give some of my earnings to my church or to Billy Graham or Campus Crusade or something. And so they think of the good that they do in God's kingdom as primarily how they can share their faith with, each, with other people at their work or what they can give uh, to the work of the church. But I want to challenge that idea and say those are good and those are certainly pleasing to God. I want to say something else. I want to say the actual activity that you are doing at your workplace is itself serving God and it is itself pleasing to God. Not just the money that you give from what you earn and not just the witness that you are to others, but the business activity that you do in itself is something that I think you should look on and think that God is looking at and is pleased because it's part of how he made us to work in this world. And when you buy things in the store, I want you to think of those commercial transactions as being something that are not things that are not just morally neutral, but good and pleasing to God. And that's what I want to explain tonight. So we'll get to that in just a minute. Tomorrow morning, the second session that I have talking about business, I want to give you four principles from the Bible that I think will help solve most ethical questions that come up in terms of business business ethics. Four basic principles. And then um, the third session, uh, tomorrow night, I want to talk about the Bible's solution to world poverty. I have teamed up with a professional economist, a friend of mine, fellow elder at Scottsdale Bible Church in Arizona, named Barry Asmus. He and I have gone to a number of third world countries now, talking to Christians about factors within nations that lead to continual growth in prosperity or continual poverty. And those principles come both from the Bible and from a study of economic history. So these are factors within nations that can transform nations, and that's tomorrow night. But for today, I want to talk about business in itself and how it can be glorifying to God. This is largely coming from my book that uh, Ryan mentioned, Business for the Glory of God. Um, and, uh, and I want to talk from this. Now, let's see, Bob. Do we have... Yes, good. Topics related to commercial tra- to business. Um, I want to talk about only 11 points in the next 50 minutes. (laughs) We'll see how fast we can do this. Um, Ownership. um, Is God pleased with owning things? Number two, productivity. Is he pleased when we take materials from the earth and produce goods for people to use? Number three, employment. Is it pleasing for people to work for one another and be paid for it? Number four, commercial transactions. That means buying something at a store or selling something at a garage sale. Uh, Number five, is God pleased with profit? I think yes. I'll try to explain why. How about money? Yes, I think God is pleased with that as well. Uh, Inequality of possessions. Is God pleased when some people have more than others? 
Well, wait. <laughs> I think you'll see a pattern pretty soon. Competition, I'm going to say that all of these things are in themselves pleasing to God. They're part of how he set up the world to work. Borrowing and lending, and then we'll talk a little bit about attitudes of heart and world poverty. So let's go to the first one, um, ownership, although there's a preliminary concept here before I get to any of those factors, and that is the idea of honoring God or glorifying God by imitation of his attributes. It's a great help in understanding the moral teachings of Scripture if we realize that much of God's, many of God's commands to us come from the fact that he loves to see us be like him when we imitate him. Doesn't the Bible say this? We love because he first loved us, right? Be merciful as your Father in heaven is. Okay, be holy as I am holy, says God. So you see, God is holy, we are to be holy. God is love, we are to love. God speaks the truth, he wants us to speak the truth. He's a truth-telling God. So in many areas of life, he wants us to imitate his attributes. Just as, you know, if you've raised children at all, and you see them imitating some of the good things that you do, being kind to others, or having fun, or telling the truth, or working hard, you get joy in seeing your children turn out right, and do things in imitation of what they've seen in you. Now, of course, we're troubled when we see children imitate some mistakes that we've made, too. But that's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about the positive joy we get from seeing our children imitate us. And God is that way. He set up the world to work in such a way that he wants us to be imitators of his excellent character. And we see this at the very beginning. God saw everything that he had made, and behold, it was very good. God took delight in his creation because he saw that in many ways it reflected such an abundance of truth about his own character. The complexity of all living things showing God's wisdom and skill in creation and the... um, the beauty of the creation, reflecting some of the actual beauty of God in the excellence of his character. and many other ways, God took delight in what he had made because it reflected much of his character. Well, let's go on to the next slide then. How should we evaluate various aspects of business activity? First, the first of these nine points that I want to go through is ownership. Owning possessions is fundamentally good and provides many opportunities for glorifying God, but also many temptations to sin. And by sin, I mean violating the moral commands of God. We see that built into the foundational commandments that God gave to the people of Israel, the Ten Commandments. In the Ten Commandments, commandment number six is... Nope, I'm sorry. Commandment number eight. Six is you shall not murder. Seven is you shall not commit adultery. Eight is you shall not steal. Why should I not steal my neighbor's ox or donkey or today my neighbor's car or laptop? Because it's my neighbor's. It's not mine. God explains that idea of ownership of property a bit further in the 10th commandment that says not only should you not steal, but also you shouldn't desire to steal. You shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife 
or his male servant or his female servant or his ox or his donkey or anything that is your neighbor's. In other words, that ox belonged to my neighbor. That donkey belonged to my neighbor. Inherent in the Ten Commandments is the idea of private property. That is, ownership of a house or an ox or a donkey. And so the Bible's teaching on private property extends into other laws in the Old Testament about not stealing and penalties for stealing and being honest in transactions and buying and selling land and things like that. But there's an assumption that people will own property. Now, I think that is an essential part of how God created us as human beings because when we own property, we have to be responsible stewards of that property. And in doing that, we have many opportunities to glorify God. If we own property, we can take care of it. We can use it to care for others. We can use it to uh, provide food for ourselves and our families. We can use uh, any property that we have to become more productive, perhaps grow more crops from a farm or produce more goods in a factory. Or we could use it to give to the work of the church. Or we could use that property in other ways to perhaps invest and see it grow. But it takes wisdom to do that. And it gives opportunities for us to demonstrate wisdom, love for others, faithfulness to God. Many other attributes of God that are demonstrated in the management and care of what he entrusts to us. So God has built into us a desire to have stewardship or what we call ownership of property we see that in children from a very early age a lot of times children will delight in having a little um, hamster or rabbit or perhaps a dog or a cat to take care of why i think god has built into them that sense of wanting to have stewardship or responsibility for a pet or children from a very early age have a sense that they have Toys that are their own, that they want to take care of. Now, I know children can be selfish in that, but in itself, the idea of having something that belongs to you that you take care of is not itself greedy. I think it's in itself a reflection of something that God has built inside of us. In fact, the idea of stewardship of property is a reflection in a faint way of God's attribute of sovereignty over the universe. See, God is sovereign and takes care of the entire universe. But for us, whether it's a child taking care of her toys at age four, or someone at age 40 being the foreman or owner of an entire factory, in each case, there's a faint reflection of God's sovereignty his wise control over use of resources. And so I think God has built into us a desire to own things and then to care for them. Now, now I said many opportunities for glorifying God, but many temptations to sin. There can, be, there can be greed and selfishness, and people can use property as an idol and have it turn their hearts away from God. But in itself, God has built us to own property and possess things whether it's a car or a bicycle as a child or an apartment that you have, that you live in, or perhaps a home, or perhaps land, or perhaps a company. 
Now, some people object to that, and they say, well, what about Acts 4, where the disciples had all things in common, and they didn't say that anything they had was their own, but they gave to everyone in need. I understand that that's a remarkable outpouring of the work of the Holy Spirit, resulting in incredible generosity to help needs as they arose. But it does not mean, as some have said, that there's early communism in the book of Acts. It is not so for two reasons. First, it was not compelled by the government. It was entirely voluntary by a work of the Holy Spirit in their hearts. And second, it did not mean that people gave up owning things because in the very next chapter, Ananias and Sapphira sold some land and then came and said, hey, we sold it for 500 shekels, here's the 500 shekels, but they'd really sold it for 800 or something like that. They were lying about the amount. But Peter told them, while it was yours... Did not, did not remain in your possession. While it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? After it was sold, was it not at your disposal? In other words, you didn't have to give it away. It was something voluntary. And what we see there is an affirmation of private property. And then if you take the word house or home and you uh, trace it in a concordance through the rest of the book of Acts and the epistles, you see many places where the church is meeting in people's homes. They still own homes after Acts 4. So it wasn't an abolition of private property. Property is in itself, then, the ownership of property is something that is good and and pleasing to God, but can be misused. That's number one. Number two, productivity, producing goods and services, is fundamentally good and provides many opportunities for glorifying God, but also many temptations to sin. I think we see this in the beginning of the Bible, where in Genesis 1, God put... Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden, it says God blessed them and said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it. And the Hebrew word there translated subdue means make it useful, develop it into useful products. That means not only pick the tomatoes and the oranges and the strawberries and eat them, of course it meant that, but it also meant develop other resources from the earth and make them into things that are useful to you. And so I think that implied that Adam and Eve, if they had not sinned and had been left alone in the garden would eventually have begun to develop uh, the use of wood for making uh, housing to live in, Uh, probably the use of uh, carts for hauling uh, vegetables and produce and buildings to store them in, and eventually probably other things such as roads and domesticating animals, and eventually uh, automobiles and tractors and trucks and airplanes, ultimately, because... God put in the earth the resources that enabled us to develop those things and make them useful for us. If we could just by a time machine imagine that we could transport Adam and Eve here suddenly into Albuquerque in 2010 and give them proper clothing, of course, (laughs) and and they would look around and and I, I think probably the first thing they'd say is, what are those? And we'd say, well, those are lights that, I mean, you can meet inside and it's not dark, even at night. That's right, we can meet here anytime and see, and there's light. Well, where did those lights come from? They'd say, well, we made them from resources in the earth. You mean God gave us in the earth the treasures that could make those lights? Yes. And you mean God gave you the wisdom to figure out how to do that? Yes. They'd say, praise God. Glory be to God. And then they'd look at this. <laughs> Say, 
What, what, what is this? Well, this is water. Cold, clear water, you don't have to run to the stream to drink it? No? We carry it around in a little bottle like this. Well, where did this come from? Well, we made this bottle from resources in the earth. And God gave you the wisdom to figure out how to make this beautiful, beautiful item? And, 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 and we say, yes, God gave us the wisdom and he gave us the resources. They'd say, praise God, glory be to God. Every single thing that they could see would be a cause of just overwhelming thanksgiving in their hearts to God. And then get this. <laughs> What's that? I say, well, do you want to talk to my dad? He's in Orlando. Orlando, where's that? Well, walking, it would take you about 100 days journey to get there. But I can talk to him instantly on this. Oh. <gasps> God gave you the resources to make that so you could talk to your loved ones and your friends far away? Yes. Oh, glory be to God. Praise be to God. They would just be rejoicing at every, every, every uh, bit of resource that came from the earth. Incidentally, my dad is going to be 93 years old tomorrow. And uh, he's in the nursing home now, but very alert and, and doing quite well. So I'm going to call him and wish him happy birthday. So... All I want to do is say that when God told Adam and Eve to subdue the earth, he expected that they would develop the resources that we've developed today. Can these be used? Can we give in to temptations to sin? Yes. People can make faulty products. They can make stepladders that break and injure people. They can make hallucinogenic drugs that that uh, distort people's minds, and they can produce pornography on printed paper. I understand that people can make sinful products. But that doesn't mean that producing goods and services from the earth is sinful in itself. No, I think, and I don't think it's morally neutral, but I think making clothing and cars and cell phones and water bottles and all the other things that we make from the earth is morally good, and it's pleasing to God, and it's part of what he put us on the earth to do. Being able to do these things is part of what it means to be made in the image of God and to be more like God than any other creature. And when you think about it, the human race is different in that regard from every other creature that God has made. Rabbits live in the same kinds of holes that they've lived in the ground for thousands of years, and squirrels in the same kinds of nests in trees, and beavers build the same kinds of dams that they've lived in. But... All of us live in homes that are much more advanced and modern than our great-grandparents lived in. Or perhaps our grandparents, surely, when they were growing up. Why? Because there's built into the heart of human beings a desire to invent and create and produce. Because God gave us that desire, and we like to do it as human beings, and we like to enjoy the fruits of the earth, for which we should be giving thanks to God. Businesses that do that, do that, I think, because God has put us on the earth to do that. And doing those activities in themselves is pleasing to God. Let's go to the next item. Employment. Hiring people to do work is fundamentally good and provides many opportunities for glorifying God. This is getting to be a repetitive theme. Um, but also many, many temptations to sin. Now, um, 
there are many examples in the Bible about people working for one another, employees or employers, uh, servants and masters. Jesus said, remain in the same house eating and drinking what they provide for the laborer deserves his wages. He gives um, a kind of a general principle that says it's right to pay someone for his work. Now, when I say that it's right to pay someone for his work and that employer-employee relationships are inherently morally good, I am challenging a fundamental assumption of Marxism that says that employers who employ other people are exploiting them. And there's, a, and there's a, a class warfare and a fundamental conflict between the proletariat and the bourgeoisie. And, uh, and Marxism, Marxism is contrary to the Bible. In, in the Bible, I think, sees that employer-employee relationships can be mutually beneficial and not exploitative. When I talked about ownership of property, again, I'm contradicting a fundamental principle of Marxism. Marx said... The, the fundamental principle of Marxism can be summed up in one sentence, abolition of private property. But I think that guarantees that it is the most dehumanizing economic system ever invented in the human race because it takes away from people uh, the right to glorify God through the stewardship of property. So here, employer-employee um, relationships are in themselves good and pleasing to God. Now... Um, here, if, how many of you work for somebody else? <laughs> how many of you have other people working for you? Okay, many of you. Um, I want you to see this as mutually beneficial, not as someone wins and someone loses. God has set up the world in such a way that we can do good for each other in employer-employee relationships. Example, this is the last, calendar, this is the last uh, business day of the month. That means, I hope, Phoenix Seminary has deposited a certain amount of money in my bank account today. In fact, I haven't gotten an email to that effect. I'm wondering what's happened. Uh, but they, they do. They're faithful. Now, what happens? When I go to work at Phoenix Seminary... Um, I, I, I understand, they think that I'm doing good for the seminary, and so they're happy, and so they pay me. So they think that the seminary is better off after I've taught a class than before I taught a class. They think that I'm doing good for them, in other words. Does that make sense? But when I get done teaching, they pay me, and I say, oh, I'm better off too. So I have done good for them by teaching a class, They've done good for me by paying me. I'm better off. They're better off. It's a win-win situation. And so it seems to me that working for someone else and then getting paid for that work is a way for both of us to do good for each other. And so it's one way of fulfilling Jesus' command, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Because we do good for each other in employer-employee situations. Does that make sense? Yes, does it? I think it does. No, doesn't that transform the way you think about working? I'm doing good for someone else. Someone else is doing good for me. We're benefiting each other. Isn't that wonderful? That God, now, horses don't do that. Pay each other in bales of hay. 
Cows don't do that. Rabbits don't do that. Squirrels don't do that. Only human beings. It's a wonderful ability that God has given to us and is something by which we can glorify God. Let's go on to the next slide. Commercial transactions. Buying and selling are fundamentally good and provide many opportunities for glorifying God, but also many temptations to sin. Leviticus 25, 14, if you make a sale to your neighbor or buy from your neighbor, you shall not wrong one another. In other words, it's possible to sell something without ripping people off and doing wrong. It's possible to buy someone without defraud, buy something from someone without defrauding them. It's possible to buy and sell without doing wrong. In other words, by doing good. And so, I have an example, but I need a volunteer. You have to be very brave. What's your name? Oh, here, with your hand up. Are you volunteering? What's your name? Carrie. Carrie, would you like a copy of this book? You would. Okay, now, but the problem is you have to pay for it. So here, we've got to... <laughs> no, one, no one look. Carrie, will you hold that for a minute? Okay. Now, I have this book called Business for the Glory of God. I actually have too many copies of it. So I don't want this copy very much anymore. Carrie is looking at this book, and she's looking at it intently. (laughs) And she's saying, I would like to have a copy of that book. And she's thinking, I would like to pay $10 for that book. Right? So hold up your $10 bill. Okay. Now, I'm thinking, do I want the book more or the $10 more? I want the $10 more. I know that because I've got too many copies of the book. Would you like the book more or the $10 more? I think I'm going to need the she wants the book. Oh, so we trade. Am I better off? I am because I wanted this more than the book. Is she better off? Yes, because she wanted the book more than this. We benefited. We both benefited from a voluntary transaction. Isn't that amazing? I did good for her. She did good for me. We're both happy. Commercial transactions are a way of doing good for each other. Doesn't that transform the way you think about buying and selling? See, I I think God has set up the world in such a way that among human beings, commercial transactions are possible. And they're a way of doing good for one another. And we shouldn't think of business transactions as somebody always wins and somebody always loses. No, I think we should think of them as we're able to bring benefit to each other. And, you know, people that have been successful in business more than once have told me, that a good business transaction is one that benefits both parties. And someone in the business world who has that mentality can do very well in business. Every once in a while, you meet someone, they say, who has to get 100% of the benefit of a transaction and doesn't want you to get any benefit out of it at all. And no one wants to do business with that kind of person. But a good business transaction is one in which 
we do good for each other. In fact, it's another way of obeying Jesus' command, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Barry Asmus, my economist friend, and I were in Tirana, Albania, the capital, and we spoke on Christian principles for transforming poor nations into self-sustaining economic growth. We finished, and our plane was scheduled to leave Tirana to fly to London and then back here to the United States on a Sunday. And our hosts took us to the airport. We checked our bags. We started to go through security, and I realized, "Uh uh-oh, I have some Albanian currency left, which I have no hope in my lifetime of ever using again. The currency is called lek, L-E-K. And I had about uh, 1,500 lek, which was about $15 American. And I said to the agent who was checking people in at security, I said, where can I change currency to, to, uh, before I enter security? And he said, sorry, it's all closed today. It's Sunday. Okay, so I thought I'm going to lose $15. But he said, you can trade it with a private dealer. And I said, what? And I look around, and there are a couple of guys there in leather jackets, kind of smiling. <laughs> so I go up to this guy. He said, you have lek? Yes. You want euro? I said, okay. And because uh, I could use euros. And, uh, and he gave me a certain, I said, I have 1,500 lek. And he gave me this lowball number, and I'd already figured out what, how much I wanted. And I said, no, no deal. He said, oh, dollar, how many dollar? And, and, and he said, I give you $12. So it's worth $15. But he's offering me 12 And I say, okay. Why? Because 12 is better than zero. <laughs> okay? So I gave him the 1,500 lek. He gave me the $12. And I gave him a big smile, and he said, you happy? Because he, he probably was used to people thinking, you know, you're ripping me off, and he just made $3 profit. He, was, he said, you happy? I said, yeah, I happy. And he said, I happy too. <laughs> <laughs> I happy, you happy. I said, that's right, I happy, you happy. And then, and then I said, Merry Christmas. And he said, Happy New Year. <laughs> So I had Barry Asmus, my friend, take a picture of me holding the dollars and he's holding the leck. I happy, you happy. But that's the essence of commercial transactions that benefit both parties. I was happy. He was happy. Let's go to the next slide. Profit. Oh, my goodness. I took economics as an undergraduate. And profit was almost a swear word evil capitalists thinking you should make a profit. But you know what? I think profit is a good thing. Earning a profit is fundamentally good and provides many opportunities for glorifying God, but also many temptations to sin. Here we've got the parable of the minas. The first came before him saying, Lord, your mina has made ten minas more. And he said, well done, good servant, because you've been faithful in a very little, you shall have authority over ten cities. So making more money with the money that was entrusted to the servant was approved by the master, who in the parable stands for Jesus. Or in Proverbs thirty-one eighteen, the godly woman, she perceives that her merchandise is profitable. Her lamp does not go out at night. And the Hebrew lexicon defines the Hebrew word behind profitable as um, something that makes money in a commercial transaction. 
So the godly woman is making things and selling them and earning a profit. And this is approved or commended in Proverbs 31. What is profit? Profit is a measure of the value that you have added to the economy. So, we went to Jason's Deli tonight. How much did that salad cost that I bought? Six ninety-five, maybe. It was a chicken salad, and it had apples and cranberries and nuts and raisins and lettuce and some other things. Chicken. Now, let's say it cost them the goods and the labor and the overhead and the electric bill and all that. Let's say it cost them four ninety-five, and I paid, but I didn't really pay because Ryan was paying six ninety-five. Um, but let's shorten it and say I'm, I'm paying. I am happy to pay that six ninety five for four ninety five worth of goods because they've added value to it. They've got it all prepared there in an attractive way, and they bring it out to me, and I say, "Oh, I'm delighted to pay six ninety five." Just like Carrie was happy to pay for the book, I'm happy to pay for the salad more than it cost them. Because I'm saying it's worth that much to me. But wait a minute, it only costs them $4.95. But it's worth $6.95 to me. So I'm saying now the value of the $4.95 in raw materials is $6.95. Well, that means that $2 worth of value has been added to the economy of the world, or the economy of Albuquerque, by the restaurant having that salad and making it. Does that, does that make sense? How do I know the four ninety five stuff is worth six ninety five? Because that's what I paid for it. That's the only way I know to measure value. So the baker that bakes a hundred loaves of bread at four in the morning gets up and gets in early. Before anybody has bought one loaf of bread, he bakes a hundred loaves, and it costs him two dollars a loaf, and he sells it for four dollars a loaf. He's adding value to the economy. Because he's selling a product that's worth $4. It only cost him two. So do you see that profit is a measure of how much value you have added according to people's estimate when they pay for it? Do you like that? I think, I think it's good. I think it's a good measure. I have a friend who has a, a high-tech plastics molding company. And he took me and Margaret around his factory one night in Scottsdale. They get these barrels that are like these big, that big around and that high off the floor, and they're filled with little white plastic pellets of raw plastic, uh, you know, about, about that big around, about as big as a, a quarter, but they're a sphere. Uh, just raw plastic, and they're not worth much of anything. I suppose you could have plastic pellet fights with them or something, but they're not. So then he took me up to the display shop where it shows the stuff that they're making, and they make inkjet cartridges for printers, for one thing. But another thing they made was a little plastic set of arms that opens like this, and there are suction cups on the top of the arm. And I said, what in the world is that thing? He said, well, that is what the heart surgeon uses when he does heart surgery. He puts the suction cups on your heart and lifts it up so he can operate on it. <laughs> How much do you sell that for? $900. How much value has he added to the raw plastic pellets worth 35 cents? <laughs> About $899.65 worth, 
but you know, he's paid some engineers and some other things, I'm sure. Um, I like it that he can do that from the raw materials in the earth. And I think Adam and Eve would say, praise be to God, glory to God, that you're able to produce those things. And he's adding value to the raw materials. And I'll tell you, if I have heart surgery, I want suction cups that work. (laughs) And I'm glad that they do it with a high precision and, and that they do it accurately and that people are willing to pay for that. Earning a profit is fundamentally good. Are there temptations to sin? Sure. People can sell shoddy materials and and cheat people. They can take advantage of uh, desperate people in desperate need and and do excessive uh, kinds of profit and and, um, put um, just seek to rip off a customer and not deliver value and things like that. But those are distortions of the thing. The thing in itself is, I think, a measure of good. Now, what do you think? How much is Bill Gates worth now? $40 $40 billion? $50 billion? Let's say 40 Let's say it kind of goes up and down. I'm not sure he can't quite keep track of it. But let's say he's worth $45 billion now. Now, the question is, what do we think about that? I um, produced that slide with Microsoft Word and then PowerPoint. I bought products from Bill Gates because they worked. And I like that they work. And... Actually, I've contributed to his $40 billion. But when I do that, I'm saying I'm happier with the Microsoft Word program that you got for me, Bill Gates, that you made for me, than I am with the whatever I paid for it. I can't remember. So I'm contributing to his profit, but he's giving me a good product, and he's added value to the world. So I think that his $40 billion measures that he's given $40 billion of value to the world. Does that make sense? Profit is a measure of the value that you've added to the world. Okay, let's go to the next slide. Money. Oh my goodness. Is money the root of all evils? No, the Bible doesn't say that. It says in 1 Timothy 6.10, the love of money is a root of all kinds of evils. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. In fact, God says in Haggai, the silver is mine and the gold is mine, declares the Lord of hosts. If it was sinful to have money, God wouldn't have any, but he has quite a bit of it, actually. (laughs) Money is actually a wonderful human invention that I think God gave us the ability to invent. And it isn't found in the animal kingdom. Again, it's something that's unique to human beings. You don't see cows and horses and rabbits and squirrels, and dogs and cats, trading bones or bales of hay or anything like that. Money is a human invention. Now, I'm going to have to borrow the book back from you, Jerry. <laughs> but I will sign it and give it to you as soon as the session is over, all right? Let's say that there wasn't any money in the world then we'd have to just try to barter with each other and trade eggs for uh, beef or clothing or um, houses or whatever. Or if you didn't have eggs, maybe you would be an author and you'd have books at home. 
and I could go into the local, we have a Safeway store near us, I could go into the local Safeway store and get a basket of groceries and say to the manager, well, look, um, I have this book on business. Could I trade this for this basket of groceries? And, you know, the first time I came in, the, um, the manager might say, well, that looks kind of interesting to me. Okay, take the basket of groceries and I'll take the book. It's a good deal. But I come back next week and I say, well, here I am again. I've got another book, another copy of the same book. And he said, get out of here. I don't need another copy of that same book. So what do I do if I'm reduced to bartering? It really makes it exceptionally difficult. And how do I know how many eggs this book is worth or how many loaves of bread? And there's no measure to tell me how how, how much I should trade for something else. And so if we don't have money um, and we have to barter, we're basically reduced to subsistence level living and we can just trade um, uh, you know, a few eggs or chickens for a few other necessities, but, but we're basically back to caveman style of living. But if, if I have money, I'll give this back to you now. If I have money, I can take the $10 that I've just sold that book for. Where'd my $10 go? <laughs> I may have lost the book and the money. No, here's the $10. I, I can go into the grocer and say, here's $10. I'd like $10 worth of groceries. And he'll always accept this. Why? Because money is the one thing in the whole country that everybody can trade for anything else. It's a a medium of exchange. And and the the grocer can can buy clothes with it, or he can buy home repairs with it, or he can buy flute lessons for his elementary school child, or whatever he wants. It's the one item that everybody will trade for everybody else with, with and it's a, it has a fixed value that everybody knows. Everybody knows how much $10 is worth, as long as we don't have unbridled inflation in the economy. So it's predictable, and it becomes then a measure of value. I might not know how many groceries my book is worth, but when I sell it for $10, then I know it's worth $10 worth of groceries. So money is a measure of value as well as a medium of exchange. And so I think money is something absolutely wonderful. It allows us to obtain all the benefits of all the productivity of the economies of the world for a standard medium of exchange. It's fundamentally good and provides many opportunities for glorifying God, for providing for the needs of ourselves and our families, for giving to the needs of others, for giving to the needs of the church, or for saving and investing for future needs. But many temptations to sin because it is so powerful. There are temptations that go along with money, and probably better than anyone in the world, Randy Elkhorn, who's going to speak later tonight, has analyzed the dangers as well as the values of money. He's written some marvelous works on that. And so we understand there are temptations to sin, but I don't want you to think money is evil in itself. I think it's something that God has given us as something good. Let's go on to the next slide. Inequality of possessions. Oh, my goodness. I know there's a, kind of an instinct in us that would say, Isn't, wouldn't it be nice if everybody was equal in possessions? <clears throat> but when we think about it a while, 
and probably isn't the way God has made the world to work. And so my argument here is inequality of possessions is fundamentally good and provides many opportunities for glorifying God, but also many temptations to sin, and some kinds of inequalities are wrong in themselves. Um, He said to him, Well done, good servant, because you have been faithful over very little, you shall have authority over ten cities. And the second came, Lord, your mina has made five minas. He said, "You you are to be over five cities. So even in the age to come, after final judgment, when there is no sin left in the world, some will have greater stewardship than others. Some will have authority over ten cities and some over five. And in the angelic realm, We have angels, and then we have archangels who have authority over greater areas and greater numbers of angels. There's differences of stewardship that God has assigned even in the world to come. So God's goal in the world is not total equality of possessions. And in fact, you know, you see this if you raise children. If you have three children and you would give each of them $10, a week later... (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> one, one of our children would have spent not a cent. He would have saved all $10. He's just a saver. Another one would have spent it. And another one would have spent some of it. Another one would have probably spent all of it. Children are different. And one, one would work hard and save more. Another one, they're different. And, you know, if you have a world where you pay people for different skills and different desires to work hard or not, then it's inevitable that if the world is just, people are going to end up with different amounts of possessions. And so that's the way the world is. If the government would just all of a sudden in Albuquerque take everybody's money and put it in a big pot and distribute it all equally, two days later, it wouldn't be equal anymore because some people would be working more and and, uh, investing or saving and others would be spending or splurging and growing out and getting drunk. So, um, So there are inequalities And I think what we should seek is that people are fairly rewarded according to the work that they do and hope that everybody has a means to earn a living. Because the Bible says it is right to eliminate poverty. 1 John 3.17, if anyone has this world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? So if we see people in need, we are to give to them so that there is some inequality that is so great that people are in poverty and need, and then, of course, we should help them. I'm not saying that that is wrong, that is right, according to Scripture. But inequality in general is something about how God has made the world to to work. Um, Next slide. Some people, some powerful people wrongly oppress the poor, and this is condemned by God and will be judged. So James says, come now you rich, weep and howl for the miseries that are coming upon you. And in verse 4 here, He says, Behold, the wages of the laborers who mold your fields, which you kept back by fraud, are crying out against you, and the cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord of hosts. God knows, and the New Testament authors knew, that there are rich people who oppress the poor. And the Bible is severe in its judgment on that abuse of power. So I don't want to say that that is right. That, of course, we must recognize is wrong. Let's go on to the next slide. Uh, competition. Competition is fundamentally good and provides many opportunities for glorifying God, but also many temptations to sin. Paul uses an athletic metaphor in 1 Corinthians 9. Do you not know that in a race all the runners run, but only one receives the prize? So run that you may obtain it. He's encouraged them in the, encouraging them in the Christian life to press on, to do better, to strive to do well. And he says, as far as his stewardship as an apostle, he was 
uh, chosen as an apostle last of all. But then on the contrary, he says in 1 Corinthians 15, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God that was with me. Um, uh, I know those are in the realm of ministry, but I think in general in the world, competition is something that spurs us on to do something better. Did you ever have, uh, did you ever coach a kid's soccer team where uh, you're scheduled and you show up at the soccer field and the other team doesn't show up and you win by default and you say, okay, we're going to have a practice here? Do the kids play as well at practice when there's not another team to compete against? No. <laughs> no, they don't. They might work kind of hard in practice, but they work hardest when they're competing against another team. That's because when we're measuring ourselves against someone else, it spurs us on to do better, and it's good for us. And I think that competitive system in the world is the reason, is the way in which God sorts people into different occupations. We, we hired a painter to paint some rooms in our house once, and he lasted a day. Because he was sloppy, and the edges weren't straight, and he was making a mess. And we just asked him not to come back, and then we got a better painter for the next day. I was helping that painter find another career. <laughs> <laughs> and the, competition, the competitive system in the world allows him to do that. When we shop for bargains, we encourage competition because we're saying we want to buy the, the, uh, the laptop or the pair of shoes or the car that is made best for the, for the best price. And in doing that, the marketplace encourages different people in different companies to try to make a better product and try to make it for more economically and then sell it. And those who do the best at it succeed in that, uh, in that uh, competitive system. And it's good for all of us. We all benefit from that. But when the other team doesn't show up and there's no competition, we're not spurred on to do our best. Now, I think in the... In the uh, academic world, in elementary school and in high school, uh, grades are competitive. And it's a way of encouraging students to go on who do well in certain subjects and then others to find other subjects that they do well in. And so we're glad when the good math students go on to be the engineers who design the airplanes or build the bridges that we drive over. I want A students in mathematics to design that airplane that I fly on because that competitive system led those people into that. And so I think that competition in general in the business world is a good thing and we should be thankful for it. Now, there's harmful competition that tries to destroy your competitor. To, there's nothing wrong with trying to repair cars better than the mechanic down the street, but there's a lot wrong with stealing his tools or lying about him or destructive competition. I'm, I don't think that is right. Let's go to the next number nine. Oh, yeah, Ecclesiastes 4.4. 4. I saw that all toil and skill and work comes from a man's envy, kinah, zeal, jealousy, competitive spirit of his neighbor. Now, Ecclesiastes said this is a vanity and striving after wind. That is, in the end, uh, it has to be uh, done to the glory of God or isn't going to come to anything. But I think he's stating a general truth about the world that uh, toil and skill and work comes from seeing someone else and trying to strive to do it uh, better. And Paul tells the Corinthians to excel in building up the church. Let's go to the next one. Borrowing and lending also are fundamentally good and provide opportunities for glorifying God, but many temptations to sin. Psalm 112 approves the man who deals generously and lends. And uh, Jesus, in his uh, parable, talks about uh, the fact that the, uh, the, the servant should have put money in the bank and collected it with interest. That's lending money to the bank. Um, <clears throat> I, um, 
I don't own a car in Chicago. I have one in Phoenix, and Margaret has one in Phoenix. But we were in Chicago a week ago, and I got a car and drove it all around. Why? Because I borrowed it from National Rent-A-Car. And I can fly to any city in the United States, in fact, most any city in the world, and it's like I've got a car there. I just go to the rental car agency and pay them some money and borrow it and pay them a fee for borrowing it. Isn't that amazing? I mean, I think it's amazing, but it's a system that God has set up in which we exhibit some trust in each other with certain safeguards. The National Car Rental trusts me to take their car and bring it back, and I trust them to give me a safe car. But it's a wonderful system in the world where we can borrow things and lend things to one another uh, without owning them, and it multiplies the usefulness of goods in the society. Let's go to the next slide. Attitudes of heart, application to world poverty. Well, all I want to say on that, because I'm right at the end here, is in summary, um, God pays attention to our attitudes of heart in the Ten Commandments, you shall not covet. But in all of this, I want to say that these business transactions, ownership, productivity, buying and selling, Bob, let's just blank this because I'm, I'm not going to say anything more about it. That all of those components of business activity are amazing, wonderful ways in which God has set up the world and set up the human race to be able to work so that we bring benefit to each other. And these things in themselves are ways of glorifying God and being thankful to him for the good that we can do for each other and for the good that he's put in the earth and that he is able to give to us through the activities of business. So does that change the way that you view uh, buying and selling and working for one another and business transactions in general? I hope so. I hope it makes you think of them as something that is positive, something that is not in itself morally evil and not in itself morally neutral, but in itself morally good and pleasing to God and something for which we should give thanks to him. Thank you very much.